Yes, our economy is strong as hell. We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm elections. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety Program. I'm Michael Duncan, joined with me in studio here. John Ashbrook, comfortably smug. How are you guys? Fantastic. Doing quite well, buddy. That's an incredible claim by our president, Joe Biden, who's like, he's become the meme. So he's like eating ice cream. Yes. While reporters are like, things are looking horrible. (laughs) This economy's falling apart. What What are your thoughts? He's like, eats ice cream. He's like, strong as hell, Jack. He he doesn't even (laughs) stop. He doesn't even stop eating the ice cream. That's, that's my favorite part about the clip. Is, is you think any normal person, certainly yeah. a president, yeah. who's got ice cream in their hand and is answering questions from reporters, could at least stop licking the ice cream as he's talking about how our economy's strong during an obvious recession. It's incredible. Dude, he, Joe Biden had to wait the entire week of his handlers backtracking, telling him what to do, what to say. <laughs> And they're like, listen, if you're good, on Saturday, you get ice cream. He had to wait an entire week. You think he's going to stop? <laughs> That's not a question. Uh, well, Holmes is not with us today. He's out there helping make the red wave happen. Let's go. Um, so he's he's unfortunately not with us. But we've got a great show. Um, our guest today, Alec Scarlatos, a congressional candidate out in Oregon. Um, you may be familiar with the name because yes. he was one um, – uh, of those of those people who stopped the terrorist on the train from Amsterdam to Paris, they made a movie a, a, about it. That, it's that, so awesome! Yeah, it's I incredible. can't believe this, dude. It's is that it's called the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Yeah, okay. yeah. And Clint Eastwood directed it. Anyway, he talks all about it in the interview, and and obviously his race in Oregon for. Um, also, today's sponsor is Rumble Up. Um, you may remember last week I, I interviewed their CEO Thomas Peters. Uh, great company, um, award-winning peer-to-peer texting platform used by all the major Republican national committees, NRSC, NRCC, RGA, RSLC, thousands of GOP campaigns and organizations across the country. Um, well, we've used them a lot here at our consulting firm, and it's just awesome that Thomas is a uh, you know avid listener of the Variety program. Yeah, he really is uh, sort of on the cutting edge of technology on this side of campaigns, and I mean, it's no... It's no wonder why everybody uses him. And he's getting people involved in campaigns. That's it. Like you know? that, that's how the red wave happens. Doing so you have people out there who are like, let's get everyone involved and help make the red wave happen. I am very excited to announce they told us that a bunch of minions um, you know, signed up to help the Laxalt No Day campaigns. Awesome. From our last um, episode we had that they sponsored. So that's great. There's still time to make a difference. Sign up. Text Ruthless to 833-530-4400. Again, text Ruthless to 833-530-4400. Um, guys, we got to talk football. Yes. We got to talk football. <laughs> For a Broncos fan, it's shocked how much I enjoy talking football, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for new listeners to the Variety program, um, Holmes, Smug, Ashbrook, and I uh, do this thing called the Ruthless Parlay, mm-hmm. where we bet a parlay bet, which is, you know, a multiple multiple bets on one betting line 
um, we bet each other's teams on the same line, the money line for them to win. So it essentially becomes so like Ashbrook's the the Cincinnati Bengals fan. Uh, Duncan likes the Colts. Holmes likes the Vikings. I'm a Broncos guy. So like a parlay on all the teams is that like you're betting that the Bengals, the Colts, the Vikings, and the Broncos are going to win. So like right. it, w- when it actually hits, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's There's long odds on it, right? But the point is you put a little money on it and hopefully – the conduct within the group chat on Sunday is is good. It's civil. So it's like, instead of me being like, wow, Colts look like trash, it's like, <laughs> my God, they got to win. Please, God, Colts win. And they, and they did in dramatic they did. fashion. They, they did. They so did great. the Bengals. Yeah. And so did the Vikings. Right. But Which Monday night. I'd like, again, I'd like to apologize in advance. <laughs> We've got Russell Wilson who's going to be cooking. And, and it's going to be a nightmare. So when folks hear this, you probably know the Broncos have lost. No, come on. <laughs> no, that's just yeah. So bad we're, juju. We're, we're recording this Monday night, obviously, so we don't know the outcome yet. Um, so you know, hopefully, hopefully the Broncos pull it out. But did you did you guys see that Eagles Cowboys game on Sunday night? First of all, the Eagles are in top form. Yeah. Jalen Hurts is exciting to watch. Serious. It's really. And by the way, Philadelphia as a sports town right now is at the top of their game. They really They've, are. They've got the Flyers undefeated 2-0. They've got the Phillies headed to, headed toward the pennant. Maybe they win the pennant. Maybe they go to the World Series. I don't want to jinx it, Phillies fans. But you guys are on top of the world with that. I don't think the Phillies undefe- do. I don't think so. You, you don't think so? Not happening. Well, they've also, they've, also gotten, they've also got an undefeated football team. I just I, I can't root for Bryce Harper. You know, he left the Nats. It's not enough that I succeed. My enemies must fail. I agree with that. That's, see, see, I, I, I totally co-sign on that. What I do love about Philadelphia is their fans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Clearly they're wonderful people. Yeah, so at, very devoted to their teams. At the Eagles game, Jill Jill Biden, doctor, doctor please doctor, she's an open heart surgeon. Doctor Jill Biden uh, gets announced. I, I assume, you know, she was there for medical care, maybe Fetterman was there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so she comes onto the field and then this happens. Wow. Wow. In Philadelphia. (laughs) That's the thing, man. At least they didn't throw batteries at her, you know? They they once threw batteries at Santa Claus. (laughs) But, you know, that that chant is famous. That is a chant that that has rung out for over a year, originally at a NASCAR event. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd... Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Never gets old. Just a classic. So happy. Absolute classic. Oh, man. So uh, you heard at the top of the show, Joe Biden says the economy is strong as hell. Uh, so we got to talk economy. here. Yes, we do. Uh, this here from MSN. Forecast for U.S. recession within a year hits 100% blow to Biden. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is a forecast. Again. 100 percent and and the thing is is that this is actually from a pretty reputable source this is uh i'll I'll read from the article it says a u.s recession is effectively certain in the next 12 months in the new bloomberg economics model projections uh blow to president joe biden's economic messaging such as the economy is strong as hell so uh bloomberg uh they're, they're famous especially among finance folks because they have these like terminals um, that are they cost an arm and a leg for for a monthly subscription, but you can pull up you know any quote on any kind of a security if it's uh, you know a stock or, or the price of, of tea in Vietnam, like any financial data you need, 
uh, Bloomberg has available, but the fact that they have that much economic data on hand and their economics team is like, well, it looks like 100% chance of recession. I mean, that's number one. Our show has, has, has been warning folks about the way that the economic data has been looking for, for months now, you know, close to a year now at this point. Um, the, the, the Democrat messaging initially went from, you know, July 4th of last year when they were like, no, actually, your picnic is going to be cheaper this year, you know, or your barbecue is going to be cheaper this year for the 4th of July, too. Uh, well, inflation is actually good to now we're at the point where inflation is crushing Americans in their daily lives when they're going to the grocery store for anything that you want to buy. It's very clear the effect of inflation. And, you know, when you have a midterm election, it's gotten to the point where, where the candidate, you know, Joe Biden can't hide from this. Like, no matter how much he wants to eat ice cream and be like, the economy is strong as hell, I think at this point, every American is very, you know, familiar with the fact that inflation is a major issue. And, and you're starting to see even even on, on the Dem side, there's like defections of, of Dems who are, who are trying to run for their lives uh, from Joe Biden and running for office being like, well, uh, uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Joe Biden's uh, take on this. When it's showing up in all the polling here, you have here from the New York Times, the headline here, Republicans gain edge as voters worry about economy. Times Siena poll finds. Shocker. Yeah. I mean, w- w- when, when Bloomberg Economics is like, there's a 100% chance of a recession. <laughs> Voters are concerned. Um, And I think this is, I think it's very key. There's two issues that I think, you know, every Republican candidate from here until the close, I mean, we're right around the corner. Yeah. Like election day is right around the corner. It is right around the corner. The economy is top of mind. And I think at this point, it's probably important to give our listeners a clear understanding Mm -hmm. of the Democrats' current situation. Yeah. So let me paint a picture. Okay. Joe Biden's unsinkable ship hit an iceberg some time ago. (laughs) The entire bow is now fully submerged. The stern bobbing high above the surface. (laughs) Democrat campaigns are scattered in the water. Wait, can I I get get Ashbrook radio voice? And they're freezing. There we go. What does that mean for you? That means it's time to start taking life jackets. We need to take every life jacket on every Democrat campaign out there. We need to put a hole in every lifeboat you see scattered throughout the water. We need to sink them. The string quartet is playing near my God to thee. (laughs) That is how you know it's time to put the throttle down and put your foot on their necks. We need to win. And I think that's key is, is, is very important. You see a lot of candidates, Dem candidates lately, trying to distance themselves from Joe Biden. But without exception, every single one of them are the people who voted for every policy Joe Biden put forth that's led this country to its current path towards economic ruin. Every single one of these folks like Tim Ryan, you know, Tim Ryan, every every Dem who's on the ballot has had a hand in enabling and supporting these economic policies that every American every time they go to the gas pump, every time they go to the grocery store, every time they walk outside and feel unsafe. Because it's the, it's not just it's the economy stupid, but crime. Like the top concerns to Americans are economy and crime. Like we don't feel safe and we don't feel secure. Right. And the whole purpose of of, of America and this country was prosperity and security. So uh, the Harvard Harris poll uh, illuminates the point Smug just made here. The most important issues ranked. Inflation, 37%. The economy, jobs, 29%. Those are sort of mm-hmm. interchangeable. Sometimes they're lumped together. 
Three, immigration, 23%. Crime and drugs, 18%. Those two are oftentimes together. Uh, number five, abortion, 17%. Yeah. That can't be true. Yamish yeah. told us it yeah. was 90% of voters. <laughs> Shout out uh, Matt Gorman, friend of the program, who was on like Meet the Press. And Mish was like, no, every single voter I meet tells me abortion doesn't matter. And he was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> right. I don't think that's their top concern at all. And, and this is a great... Uh, a great footnote uh, on this Harris uh, Harvard Harris poll: Gen six is the most important issue to seven percent of voters. It's amazing, like everything that the Dems have staked their uh, whole whole platform on. Right, no one cares about. Right, 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 right. And and the generic ballot among likely voters, Republicans are up plus six. That is insane. We love to see it. We love to see it. Um. This is also a pretty interesting story from Politico. Dems dreaded deja vu, another 50-50 Senate. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible, but, I mean, Republicans are on the march here. I think at this point a 50-50 Senate for Democrats is actually a gift. Yeah, I mean, I think that's honestly it's probably their like best outcome. That Like, they would hope for 50-50 and for Kamala to continue being like the 51st vote but like the way that you're seeing polling breaking right now for Republicans as um, we explained it before like you had a summer you know like families are away they're busy they're doing things now the kids are back in school everyone is 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 focused on the issues that you see at the kitchen counter and the issues are everything that the Dems have destroyed you know yeah which is why republicans are on the march in all of the key states nevada is a state where republicans are sitting very very pretty uh georgia is a state where you've seen a lot of news lately but democrats haven't put it away this is this is a race that republicans can win herschel walker can win this race we can win in pennsylvania well i think herschel is gonna win i mean uh he did so well at that debate i remember he, he did a, yeah, i mean that he was debate, so good that debate was so awesome and, and I, I, I tweeted about this. I remember waking up the morning after the debate, and my feed was all journalists just crying about Herschel. You had this clown guy. I can't remember what publication works for. Matt Fuller. Absolute clown journo. HuffPo, I think. HuffPo? Well, there you go. Uh, just crying. Literally just in shock of being like, why won't Warnock go on offense? Like, I can't believe he let Herschel... Just, like, wreck him like oh, this. Oh, excuse me. He's at the Daily Beast now. Daily Beast. Well, yeah. they're all the same. They're yeah. all the clown outfits. But, like, the fact that I woke up and my feed is all journos just crying. crying. Yeah. That's how you know it's good. That's I was like, you know. wow. <laughs> wow. Like, they are so worried. We're yeah. winning. Yeah, it's incredible. But we can't rest on our laurels, you know? I mean, we were talking about football earlier. Uh, when I open my fantasy football app, yes, pretty much, you know, every Sunday, I'll be slightly favored to win based on the projection and sometimes that doesn't work out so you got to go out there and do the work dude that's you you have to do the work and this is what smog always says right the red wave is not something yeah people like to people like to talk about polling like it's an inevitability but it's not an inevitability you got to get out there and work for it that's a great example and it hurt my feelings my team's been performing so bad (laughs) now i'm worried everybody put in the work yeah but you've made some trades yeah you got to get out there and vote that's the thing is that like polls are polls but really, it's like for everyone listening, you're listening to this because we're a great source of information for what's happening. But at the end of the day, the most important thing any of us can do is to put an end to the madness of our current administration. Yeah, and, and and Democrats are ripe for the picking. They are literally sitting out in the North Atlantic, helpless in lifeboats. <laughs> yeah. All you have to do is put a hole in the boat, 
and they sink. I mean, I mean, Drazen out there is up. Like yeah. we're talking about in Oregon. Like, in Oregon, no, no blue state is safe. Like everyone, yeah. like if you can hear our voices, get out there on election day, vote Republican, and we're going to hold these people accountable. Yeah. So another Senate news here, uh, Evan McMullen. You may remember him as the guy who ran in 2016, um, the never Trumper candidate. You know who all the Lincoln Project people were getting behind and everything. He's now running for Senate against Mike Lee in Utah. Uh, story here from Fox News: uh, McMullen's campaign has paid out over 1.6 million dollars to Dem firms, despite calling himself a quote independent. Hmm. That's a shocker. Huh, it's almost like this guy's a Trojan horse. And and, and what's also hilarious is, is a lot of folks might know that when he ran for president, he owes a lot of money to a lot of people. Like, he has not paid his bills from running for, for president. So, like, I don't know what the point is of him fundraising. God knows where the money goes because it clearly doesn't go to, like, the vendors who work for him. Speaking of fundraising, he's also on Act Blue, which is the Democrats. Is he on Act he's Blue? He's on Act Blue. Right, yeah. No, he raises money with Democrats. He hires Democrats. He's a Democrat. Here's here's more from the Fox News story. The campaign has also paid over 1.6 million to Democrat firms during the 2020 election cycle, including 715 thousand dollars to break something. A quote: full service digital advertising and political consulting firm that specializes in electing Democrats, furthering causes, and creating change. Man, what a name for a firm! Break yeah. something I mean, like elect Democrats breaks like they. The economy. Exactly. <laughs> That's the mission. I, I just, you know, I don't understand how a, a voter in Utah could. That's the thing is, like, I have to be honest. I'm, be I, I'm a little disappointed that people of Utah have not tarred and feathered this guy and chased him out of town. Like, get him out of there. It's unbelievable that right, this, this person electing is this guy, to act like an independent. Right. And electing this guy would make Chuck Schumer majority leader again. And I don't think that's what Utah wants. And yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. Um. Here's another great story from the Free Beacon. Yeah. Uh, Fetterman's wife demands consequences for a reporter who asked about his stroke recovery. It's incredible. So there was also uh, sort of a little boomlet that went up on Twitter over the weekend that Fetterman's wife is the actually the real candidate. Yeah, the here. de facto yep. candidate. The, yeah, and this this was written. It was Vanity Fair. I think so. No, it was or was it Rolling Stone? I think it was Rolling Stone. Stone. Okay, yeah, Rolling Stone doesn't write about music anymore. They just write about Democrat politics. Right? <laughs> it's sad. It's truly sad. And uh, they they pumped her up as the real can the de facto right. candidate, quoting the story. And then all of the Fetterman people and all the people around her were like, "No, no, no! She's not the de facto candidate. It's actually, it's actually Fetterman. He's the one who's who's actually running." And that's here. the thing is, like, I wonder why they're doing that right now. Is yeah. because I, I I mean I am at this point convinced that the inner circle on Fetterman's campaign I think the Dems who are backing him and everything know he's incapable of serving. They wanted to elevate his wife at the right time, hoping that they can get him in office. And then he says, you know, like a couple months later, well, uh, I'm sorry to say I can no longer serve, and then she just takes over. Like I, you know, I had folks sent to me and I I, I, sent, I retweeted them out numerous occasions. Uh, of his wife saying in tweets, "Well, I'm the de facto candidate," and then That's he right. had, and then the, she she tweets pictures where his head is not seen, not even in there. Her. It's all about her. <laughs> and then like uh, uh, the the Rolling Stone journal who did that interview, um, sends out this tweet being like, "I want to apologize for being imprecise when I sent out a tweet that said that she's the de facto journalist," 
And then, like, uh, people pointed out to her, you go in the article, a direct quote from her is, yep. I am the de facto candidate. But why would this journalist feel the need to reply or feel the need to apologize, you might ask? And you could go back to this Free Beacon story to read the description of about how Fetterman's wife, quote, raged mm-hmm. on Friday, accusing the NBC reporter who asked Fetterman just some basic questions about why you're running for Senate and, and could you please draw a clock. Draw a clock. Uh, she accused her of doing a, quote, disservice to journalism for the, quote, appalling report. And here's another quote. It was appalling to the entire disability community and, I think, to journalism. That is so messed up. It, it they is. try to hide behind that? It is. is She's so just up. asking questions. She's literally just asking questions, but because... But because Giselle Fetterman is a Democrat and mm-hmm. therefore sees herself on some kind of special, untouchable class yep. of American citizens who are above questioning from the press, True. you are not allowed to do it. Well, I think so. That, sh- that should be a warning to everybody in the press who's listening to this. Don't ask a Democrat a difficult question because they are going to attack you if you do. And right. that's the thing is like. I think there there's this thing, this fake narrative that like, oh my gosh, there's all these Republican attacks on the free press. When you see there is this uh, like cartel right. of Democrats who can bully journalists into doing their will. And it's known at every publication that like if you have anything that is not helpful to electing a Democrat and you publish it, like the slack in your company is going to come after you. If there is anything that is a danger to democracy in this country – it's that reporters are not permitted to write critically about one political party. It, wow, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it has been a recipe for disaster in the state of California where you have one party rule mm-hmm. and you have this fawning coverage from like just a, a press corps that just pats them on the back over and over and over again. We're, we're, as Republicans, we know we're going to be criticized. We know, we know to expect that. I think Democrats should have to expect the exact same thing, and they're just not getting it. Well, I think what it's number one. It's a it's a it's a warning to reporters, right? Don't don't cover Fetterman's stroke, otherwise we'll attack you on Twitter, right? Like that's that's part of it. I also think they're drawing this red line. You know, they keep saying he has this auditory processing issue. He Which has to rely is the most like closed captioning. Has anyone heard of the term auditory processing issue before Fetterman ran? No, it's, it's they're they're using it as an as a, as another way to say aphasia. Yeah, but they. Uh, To your point, they're drawing a red line between auditory processing and aphasia. And I think the reason why is because some other symptoms of aphasia could be a problem for somebody who wants to be a senator. Like he could, it, what if he has memory issues? And, and you know, this is the thing. Like they, they're they're so concerned about protecting the image of a politician. Right. This is somebody who's running for office. You're supposed to be critical of them. That's 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 the ante. That's what you're putting yourself up for. It, it, essentially, they're just hiding information from voters. And and who'd have guessed the same group of people who hid Hunter Biden's laptop from us in election cycle are trying to hide how severe Fetterman's issues are from voters. It's unbelievable. And remember, the Chicago Tribune, when Mark Kirk, who also had a stroke, he's a Republican senator running for election, he also had a stroke, the Chicago Tribune opposed him simply because of his stroke. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Be- literally. It was, it, I mean, it's 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 in black and white. You, don't, you can just Google it and you can go check it out. But now all of a sudden that a Democrat had a stroke, it's, it's off limits. You're not allowed to ask any questions Unreal. about it. Unreal. So let's get to some lighter news, fellas. Yes. Uh, we got some animal scandals. 
<laughs> I, I've been seeing a lot of tweets about this. Um, this one from the Washington Post. Fat parrot ineligible for bird of the year because it keeps winning. This is uh, amazing. Um, from the article, there's bad news for those hoping to crown yet again the kakapo, 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 kakapo right? mm-hmm. as New Zealand's bird of the year, the flightless bird, also known as the world's fattest parrot, isn't in the running this year. It's already won twice. Uh, somebody from the article, uh, and while he's definitely a fan favorite, we want to make sure that we're able to give attention to other birds that tend to get overlooked. It will be a brief hiatus, though, not a complete barring. So they stole the election. They're stealing the election of bird of the year? Wait, so Cockapoo... He won too much? Did it? I mean, I I think this is the bird. It's like the generic bird. I don't even know if they still exist. Do they have, like, pet stores and malls and such? Is that still a thing? I don't know. I remember you'd go there, and and there were these, like, horrible birds. Mm -hmm. You know, it smells awful. It's a horrible, horrible creature. Right. And, and, And all the birds are just completely unhappy to be there you know it's a miserable situation for everybody that's the cockapoo it's like the story of the animal is it's okay it's gonna like make noise smell horrible all day and people are like i invite you into my home terrible creature (laughs) i never understood that situation well here here's more from the article because it gets even more bizarre in the past 17 years it has turned into a full-blown electoral race this is for bird of the year with people signing up as campaign managers for each bird oh my goodness. and masterminding creative ways to get votes. If Christopher Guest, if you're listening to this show, here is great material. For this is pro. great material. Are people just really bored? People must be really bored in New Zealand. I can't imagine why. Uh, and, 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 sorry if you're a listener in New Zealand. It's actually a beautiful country. Uh, and just like other... Uh, perhaps higher stakes elections, Bird of the Year has faced a string of scandals. In 2018, fraudulent votes were cast in Australia for the shag. That's the name of the bird? Yeah. The next year, a large number of Russian votes sparked rumors of election meddling. Hilarious. Though they were later deemed legitimate. Hilarious. And then last year, Bird of the Year went to a bat. Wait. <laughs> A bat's not a bird. Yeah. No, that is such an insult after COVID. Don't <laughs> like, they, can't they just have another would, category? Was that yeah, mean? Well, no, that is, like, that was it funny. online voting? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, well, uh, Rikers, again, from the article, uh, said Forrest and Bird, who you know runs the competition, doesn't want his competition to rank among the recent rash of cheating scandals <laughs> happening in chess, Irish dancing, fishing, and even bear week. <laughs> They're requiring email verified votes and have systems to check for unique IP addresses. The first step towards fairness, for better or worse, was barring the cockapoo. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, they made a good decision. It's an awful creature. You know, apologies to anyone who owns one. I I never knew or I could never understand why people would have Have one one of these bird pets. It was like anytime I'd visit a friend growing up or whatever, and they're like, yeah, we got pet birds. There's like a room in the house. Where there's like a large cage and there's birds, and it like smells lo- terrible. Smells terrible. They're losing their minds. They're, they're loud. Yeah, they're crazy. Yeah, they're just all day long. They just like scream, screech, and they're flying from like one perch to the other. Yeah, losing their no. minds and shitting. Like no. that's their job. Right. What I want to know is how does the owner respond? Does he put the bird on a diet? <laughs> does he does he go fewer worms this year? Does he do sort of like uh, just pellets? You know, <laughs> and can he bring the weight down? I think next year at this time, we need to check back into the New Zealand bird competition and find out 
if our bird in question has lost a little weight. Well, you know what? Honestly, the competition should be who can make the biggest bird, right? Well, that would the be The bird very gets funny. weighed in. So now you really see like a competition. It's like a heavyweight. It's, it's kind of like foie gras, you know, because you're going to have people putting their birds in cages yeah, yeah. and just stuff in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> How much weight can I put? You get like a 300-pound cockatoo. I want to see that. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, we we got to get to some. We got to get to some other polling here. M- more important than political polling, and that is Halloween polling. American opinion on candy decorations and the supernatural. Uh, this is from YouGov. About two in five Americans, forty-three percent, say that the earliest acceptable time to display display Halloween decorations is between October one and fifteen. While 21% say it's okay to put them up between October 16th and 30th. Just 16% say it's acceptable to put them up before October, and 6% say they never find them acceptable. Shout out mm. to, like, the 16% who are, like, September Halloween decor. <laughs> I support that. Because, like, if you think about it, like, I remember, like, folks who, who go all out with, like, you right. know, they've got, like, Right, the grave the in the front. The animatronic shit going on yeah, in the, the front yard. Yeah, the smoke when you walk up to the door. That's a lot of work for, like, what, one week out there? Right, right, it is a lot of work. But some people go overboard. I don't know if you guys have seen these videos that have popped up online lately of kids who have been scared by their by people who are taking care of them. Have you seen this? I watched what? a video online. It is unbelievable. Of these two kids who were crying because these adults like jumped out at them in like a Freddy Krueger mask, and then another adult Are came up in a Jason costume. Like it's some people take it a little. Well, over. because we live in a degenerate society that'll do anything for content. Like there, <laughs> no, seriously. Like there are parents out there like like that will do stuff like this for for like internet just engagement. for clicks. Yeah. It's sex stuff. Well, it's in my opinion, it's the intent of the Chinese government. They created TikTok just to make Americans do horrible things to each other. Yeah, like that's their whole purpose. You see TikTok in China, it's like them building bridges and like farming, and then the algorithm here in America is like, how horrific can we make people become? Well, I mean, my decorations are already up, um, and, and your decorations are tasteful. Yeah, the spider web. I haven't yeah. seen them. When did you put them up? It must have been like in the past couple of days. Yeah, we put them up like a week ago wow yeah yeah um you know we got the cobwebs cobwebs on the banister sort of thing we got some pumpkins out there we even got an inflatable ghost that comes up at night you know but but like not like crazy scary or anything you know when the kids at the neighborhood approach the house they'll know it's a safe place it's a festive place right it's not like super not super scary right 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 but some people really really go all out yeah which I always just, I always appreciate the people who like reasonable, you yeah. know, like I don't want like a graveyard of people jumping out and scaring kids. But like the folks who are festive, like yeah. I think there's a very clear line between festive and like I, out of control. Dude, there is a house not far from me that we hit one year. This is probably like three or four years ago. And my daughter was probably like five at the time. And I, you know what? In hindsight, we probably should have skipped over the house. But we walked up. She got candy and we were walking away. And it was like, I mean, it was like realistic looking dead bodies <laughs> and like a, a, a like they, had a, they had a projection on the window of these like bloody hands trying to reach out from the window and we were <laughs> we were walking away and my daughter was like dad why would they do that <laughs> <laughs> i was like sweetheart well, i mean I you rem- know i don't know we should probably should have skipped over that so one. i remember trick-or-treating as a kid and it's just like i mean you can be festive but like 
let's make this a simple transaction, bro. I hit the doorbell. Yeah. You give me the candy, yeah. and I bounce. Yeah, how it's about a very three musketeers? Situation. Maybe yeah. a witch. That's it. You know, maybe like, a skeleton. Like, like, give me dancing. candy. I leave. I don't need to walk in, and it's it's a damn house of horrors. Right. You know, that's exactly. So right. I don't need I, you to freak me out, man. I'm just showing up for candy. See, but I, I remember like when I was growing up, and we were in my like grandparents' neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, which we trick or treat there a lot. Um, but was there the were they the urban legend? Because I remember they're like, well, that neighborhood they hand out the full candy bars. <laughs> yeah. You know, you remember that? No, oh, of course. What, what I'm my say- kids, my kids know those houses. What I'm what I'm saying is, I remember having to like sing a song or do something. Are you serious? To get candy, like in in, in my grandparents' neighborhood growing Wait, is it, up. Is this in Indianapolis? No, this was in um, Wilkesbury. Wilkesbury. Oh. This is they in made you perform. Yeah, you would come into the house and like sing a little song or something, and like people would be sitting there, you know, having their cocktails, and then they give you the candy. That's wild. You, it wasn't just a transaction; you had to do something. See, for I, it. I'm not okay with that. That's yeah. That's I'm not sure I'd be good with that either. Yeah. Well, it's the same. It's like I'm not here to perform, bro. This is like yeah. I'd say say trick or treat. Exactly. I mean, my friends were bad kids. We'll throw a brick through your window. (laughs) (laughs) Candy. So speaking speaking of candy, more from the YouGov poll here. Um, Poll of eight to fourteen year olds found that the most popular item for kids to score on Halloween night is Reese's peanut butter cups, followed closely by several other chocolate treats: original M and M's, Milky Way bar. Hershey milk chocolate bar and Kit Kats. I mean, there's you, so many bad choices here. Yeah, you, and you know what's not on the every every neighborhood has a dentist that hands out a toothbrush. Did you guys ever? Do you <laughs> guys ever? Just real <laughs> sickos, real sickos. <laughs> like, why do you have to push your beliefs on me? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just looking for candy. I'm just a kid looking for candy. What's the What's the best Halloween candy for you? Uh, you as know, an adult and as a kid, so like when you were actually out there trick or treating, what was the top? And then like now, so uh, you know, hard to beat a Snickers bar. Snickers, yeah, hard, hard to beat, hard to beat a Snickers good. bar. And the, and, and when the kids come home and they their like pillowcases are full of candy, you better believe mom and dad are filching. Well, that's their the way best right part. That's that the best candy. part of parenting. It's just like child robbery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I feel like a baby Ruth is underrated. I like yeah. a baby Ruth. Snickers, yeah. So Snickers yeah, to me good. is like the the pizza of the candy world, where it's like everybody has to love it. Yeah, like you can't go wrong with that. Like I always remember as a, as a kid, um, you'd always hate the the houses that would give you the like. I don't know who came up with this like horrible trash candy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like taffy, saltwater taffy, or what. It's just like the generic like candy in like Halloween wrapping paper, like a Necco wafers. There you go, just like absolute Ugh, garbage. Yeah. Like, like you have to hate children. Yeah, to like just show up at Target and be like, yes, I want to hurt kids, give them absolute trash for the same price. I could give them like peanut M and M's, right, yeah. or something they want. Right, you just go to the gro- the gr- groceries have this figured out. If you go to Kroger and you pick up a like a, a five pound bag of candy, they they know exactly what the kids are going to want. It. It's a mix of like Milky Way and M and M's and Skittles and you know something like and, that. And I love the mental gymnastics when you're buying that, being like, yeah, you know, maybe like. You know, 40, 50 kids will show up, but I need a 10-pound bag. And right. if anything that's left over, right. hey, I got crackle. Right. I got the good bar for a week. <laughs> yeah, because you know the kids are going to leave the crackle. It doesn't matter what you Absolute buy. Absolute suckers. Crackle the tops. <laughs> uh, and finally here from the YouGov poll, ghosts. One in five Americans say they've encountered a ghost. About two in five Americans, 41%, believe that ghosts exist. 
and about half as many, 20%, say they have personally encountered a ghost. Hmm. Hmm. Anyone here a believer? I think Duncan. If anyone, Duncan, you probably believe in ghosts, right? I don't know if I believe in ghosts per se. We did a, a ghost tour one time at, in Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, and and um, my wife was making fun of me the whole time that I, after I signed up for it. And we walked out in the parking lot of a least famous recipe chicken place and looked in a retaining ditch. And I swear to you, the person who ran the, the ghost hunting company had one of their friends like run through the had to the right brush in the back. <laughs> that's amazing. It was it was a good set, a good show. I mean, that's sure. a that's a solid. Right. They 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 made they they earned their money. It's a solid investment if you're running a ghost tour that you have your buddy, you know, in an outfit. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, for sure. Um, so back to some political news here. Uh, Biden's top border chief comes under internal fire. Hmm. This is interesting for our listeners. Whenever you get a story like this in Politico, your ears perk up. Yeah. You know, because Politico is a D.C. publication and it's often a place that Democrats like to air their dirty laundry. It's interesting because they look it seems like they're looking for a scapegoat here on the border crisis. I thought Kamala was going to solve this problem. Yeah. She was yeah. going to be the border czar, right? Anyway, from the article, uh, the head of the Custom and Border Protection uh, stands accused of being disengaged. He tells Politico he's been, quote, closely involved in major immigration-related discussions. Five current administration officials who work with CBP, uh, Commissioner Chris Magnus, portrayed him as unengaged in his job, saying he often doesn't attend White House meetings on the situation on the border, badmouths other agencies to colleagues and superiors, and has not built relationships within cpb and across other agencies to address the influx of migrants at the border so this is, so immigration is what number three on, yep. on, mm. on the list of the most important things and you have someone who biden has put in charge of the situation who just doesn't show up to meetings like for 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 everyone listening imagine if 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 you had a work meeting and you're just like I'm just not gonna roll up even even like can you imagine and then and, and people wonder why our border is in the state that it is in it, it's no shock that he's not doing the job here more from the article in Politico they complain these the, the administration officials they complain he is unfamiliar with some of the operations of <laughs> CBP sounds and, like uh, the president yeah, yeah. <laughs> and instead of focusing primarily on reforming the culture of the border patrol addressing its long list of allegations of racism and violence oh my god we're doing critical border patrol theory i mean like <laughs> to me i think this is very key like as as a reason not just for everyone here to vote but to make sure you get your friends your neighbors to vote because this kind of like stupidity right that has absolutely gripped the democratic party is so hurtful it has to be rejected to america's it, it, it's got to be extirpated at the roots we've got to tear this apart because like the person who's in charge of maintaining our safety at the border wants to do critical race theory bullshit right right and like when journalists out there attacked you know the, the folks who are frontline literally frontline on the border trying to protect us who are riding horses and were smeared as 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 whipping Right, people at the border, which was proven to be completely false, but they still lost their jobs. Yeah, they still lost their jobs. It was proven to be fake, and the White House refused to correct the record from the podium, 
from the podium, this White House still let them take the heat. And we have record amounts of fentanyl coming into this country, killing Americans. And the concern of the person who's supposed to be our guardian is, how can I apply critical race theory? This, this is it's, even- it's it, it, like it's gone from being a farce because like we all know it's ridiculous and the Dems are pushing this. It's like the stupidity, but now it's actually hurting people. There's it's beyond being a slip at the wheel. Yeah. So one other thing here from the article, because <laughs> this, this is just the cherry on top. Six of those internal critics, for example, remarked to Politico that they had seen Magnus fall asleep during multiple meetings, including one earlier this year on how to handle the current swell of Venezuelans crossing the border. And you wonder why we have record numbers crossing the border. They're literally asleep at the wheel. <laughs> I mean, we got we to impeach Mayorkas. Like, we got a clean house. Like, this is an untenable situation. The guy's falling asleep, or this dude's falling asleep at meetings. Like, this is, this is who Joe Biden has put in charge of defending America. Incredible. Uh, interesting news here. Uh, hot legal news. I like this news. Texas Pete Hot Sauce sued after a consumer learns product is made in North Carolina. Yeah, I don't blame him. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Get, if you want something done right, you do it in North Carolina. Uh, this is from Fox, <laughs> Fox Business. A California man is suing hot sauce uh, maker Texas Pete after learning the sauce isn't made in the Lone Star State. In a class action lawsuit filed last month, Philip White claimed he purchased a bottle of Texas Pete hot sauce for about $3 <laughs> at a Los Angeles supermarket in September 2021, believing it was produced in Texas, according, according to the complaint. After learning the hot sauce was made in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, he claimed the company was using false advertising. This is sort of your classic, you know, class action lawsuit bullshit where people, you know, get trial lawyers paid on bullshit. Yeah. So so, so the shame of it is that, like, trial lawyers are going to eat up the majority of the money because, like, I would support this dude making any amount of money if it came from, like, some random corporation. Like, I'm totally okay with that. Um the fact that Texas Pete knows North Carolina is where you get good hot sauce, that's understandable. Like, the thing you have to understand, folks, is North Carolina makes the best food. Like, <laughs> the taste of the food in North Carolina is incredible. The hot sauce there is great. The best barbecue on earth is that Eastern Carolina vinegar-based pulled pork. Of course, you know, this this company, I don't blame them. They're like, okay, we, we want to make the best hot sauce. We're going to do it. What Texas Pete is like, well, we got clearly relocate to North Carolina. That's how you get it done. What what hot sauce do you look, you guys like? Crystal. I think that's from uh, uh, with with a K, and I think it's from New Orleans. Crystal, best yeah. hot sauce. It's so good. It's pretty good. I think it kind of depends on what you're what you're eating, though, right? I mean, Ashbrook, do you like hot sauce? Oh, you I, like spicy I, food. I, I, I love. Yeah, I love it. He I, does. I, I do. I actually really like Texas Pete. I think this is this is slander. Uh, what we're <laughs> reading here, um, Chula. You Chula. like Cholula? Yeah, very good. I, Crystal's good. I, you know, like there really isn't Tabasco. There really isn't a hot sauce. I, See, I, I well, here's like. the thing is like I think there's a, a, a significant difference. Like Tabasco is kind of like they just try to go for like a heat. Yeah. But n- not flavor. Right. Like they think the whole whole point is like people want to feel the pain of, of heat. But like with Crystal, there's a taste. Like it's it's it's, it's very it's, good. Y- y- it's delicious. It was a Tabasco green uh, a, t- a green Tabasco that's that is very flavorful. It's actually kind of mild though. I actually really just like raw jalapenos. If you slice up a jalapeno yeah, and yeah, put it on right. the jalapeno flavor, you can't beat it. You can't. You cannot. I beat like it. I like the Tabasco Chipotle, like the Chipotle flavor mm. one. Tons of flavor. Like a little smokiness. Good. Or the uh, have you ever had the green hot sauce? It's um like yucca teco. It's is what it's called. It's like 
it's like nuclear green, like bright no fluorescent kidding. green. If you ever go to like an El Salvadorian restaurant or like an Ecuadorian oh, yeah. restaurant, you'll see it. Yeah, if you do Peruvian chicken, yeah, yeah, they give yeah. You that, they I give love you that. the Peruvian it's, chicken, man. It's very good. And then if the you're, best stuff you can get, if you're, I mean, if you eat Asian food a lot, I'm sriracha, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, I yeah. feel like it depends by the cuisine. Yeah, I, and Texas Pete is good, but I definitely understand why they moved their operations uh, to North Carolina. And here's a huge pro tip. Uh, they mentioned that it's in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. When you're driving through there, if you're on the highway, uh, roll down your windows because there's this, like, Philip Morris factory in, in Winston, and, and they're, like, curing the tobacco. And it's I'm telling you, it's the best smell you've had in your life. Nothing beats the scent of curing tobacco. Like, I don't care how much money you spend on any fragrance, any candle, nothing beats curing tobacco and they do that in winston it's fresh it's natural it, i mean it smells it's organic so good god bless so america good. god bless america can't beat that and yet the democrats want to make it illegal can't you believe it <laughs> uh you know what the democrats are also doing is they're going after gig workers an article yeah. from yeah. from the wall street journal Boy, here democrats are just the worst they're the worst i mean like every what are, horrible they, what are decision, they doing every horrible just, decision possible yeah, i know <laughs> they just want to ruin everybody's life so we talked about this uh, previously on the show in California, mm-hmm. you know, that they were trying to screw over gig workers. But the Labor Department um, on Tuesday proposed a rule that aims to reclassify millions of independent contractors as employees. About 20 million Americans work as independent contractors, which have more autonomy than employees and can set up their own hours and work for multiple companies at the same time. But progressives view these flexible arrangements as a burden, not a benefit. Independent contractors oh, can't unionize. Okay. Yep, yep. You know, they're not covered by labor's wage and overtime mandates. You know, so they're basically trying to make it impossible for employees to hire these independent contractors. Well, if our progressive overlords think it's a burden, then the millions of people who enjoy it must be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> The the, the the like uh well, the political nature of this is so apparent that like Democrats hate this because they can't force individuals to unionize right give them money be controlled to fund Democratic campaigns as someone who exists solely like uh, my personal business exists solely as an independent contractor the freedom that you enjoy like the true freedom to decide what you want to do the hours you want to work, how you want to live your life, what you want to accomplish. Like, that's what this country is essentially founded upon, right? But the thing is, is that, like, Democrats want everyone to be beholden to them. Their energy policies, like like we're seeing in California, like, folks, turn your thermostat to to our desired temperature. Don't charge your electric car. And and, 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 if you, and and if you don't do that, we're going to set it for you. There it's, you go. You know? <laughs> it, it, it is it is it is the most corrosive view. Like this is America. Yeah. People like doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. That's what this country is all about. And I'm telling you, people will push back against this as much as they'll push back against anything else. They don't want to be controlled. They don't want a central planner to tell them how to live their life, how to earn their money. And I think Democrats are, you know, they, they, every day you can, you can wake up and think, well, they've gone too far this time. I think they've really gone and too I think, far like, this time. And I think, like, it's fundamentally, ideologically, like, the difference where Republicans understand we live in a republic, and the whole basis upon that is 
is stressing the autonomy of the individual. Right, and the limits on government. I deserve the right to make my decisions, right? right? right. And not have anyone decide for me, whereas Democrats believe in this, like, collective nature. And, And, you know, as much as they try to act like economically it's not a horrible situation, the fact is that, like, if they were to pass this kind of thing, like we've seen in California, they're, they want to push just a complete control and unionization of the entire labor force. The cost, who does it get passed on to? It gets passed on to the consumer. Right. Like they want to make sure that they get a piece of the action, 10% for the big guy right. situation. Yeah. And, and and this is nothing to do with what is best for the individual. Right. And they want to tell, like Ashbrook was saying, millions of people who choose to operate as independent contractors that they're, in fact, wrong, that they are being exploited and they just don't know it. They think right. you're stupid. Right. They think, like, people people are making an active choice to do right. something that's a little bit different than, like, like, they could sign up for a corporate job if they wanted to. They could sign up for some kind of like career path in I mean, politics like, or some it, kind of career, but you know what? They want to do their own thing. Like that's that is. There's nothing more American. Here, here, here's some of the industries this impacts. So, newspaper columnists, truck drivers, that's real estate agents, barbers, consultants, yep. freelancers. I mean, like it is a wide swath. Like so much of of our critical infrastructure depends on the ability of of independent contractors. Like. They want to control every trucker in this country. Wild. They want to control that infrastructure and decide like, okay, well, you know, this person didn't agree, this state didn't agree with our decision, so we're not gonna send supplies there this month. If you're cutting hair for a living, Joe Biden wants to control you. Otherwise the country's gonna, I mean. I mean, can you, I mean, it's insane. The, the power grab that we've seen that has unfolded in these two years and that has continued, like, the fact that they are now trying to make a play of like ending an independent economy. It is going to like it we want to get rid of so fast. They they it's so quick. Like the way the, the left moves so fast, so quickly, and the fact that they have the entire like journalism industrial complex to, to be like, hey, it's totally normal for Democrats to try to destroy uh, independent it's, economy. It's because they hate this country. That is, that it's is it's because they hate individualism. I mean, yeah. It's because there, it is so offensive to them that normal people out there want to do things on their own. They want to control you, yep. and it's it's it is the, it is a corrosive force in society. We have to fight back against That's it. it, and we fight back against it by electing people like Alex Scarlatos, who's on the program, Oregon's fourth congressional district. Let's get to that interview. I want to welcome to the program Alex Scarlatos. How are you? I'm great. It's great to be on the uh, program. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you. You know, we've had uh, a lot of amazing uh, candidates for House and for Senate come on the show. Um, But I don't think we've had anybody come on who, you know, helped take down a terrorist on a train. (laughs) So I think that's a a first for the Ruthless Variety program. Um, Alec, for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of background uh, there? I mean, people are probably familiar with some of the story, um, but it's really an incredible story that I'd love for you to share. Yeah, well, I'll try to give you the short version, but, uh, you know, I... um was coming off of a deployment to Afghanistan and uh, my best friend from childhood, Spencer Stone, was stationed in Portugal in the Azores. And so I wanted to do this European vacation. He was already in Europe, so it made sense. Uh, He invited our other friend, Anthony, who we'd known since middle school. And we all uh, met up in Amsterdam after being in 
Europe for about a week or two. And, uh, you know, since I'm running for political office, I will gloss over Amsterdam, but we were there for about three or four days. <laughs> um, decided to uh, get on a train to Paris. There's kind of a lot of coincidences that put us in that time and place. Um, but basically we ended up in first class. I was on the window seat, Spencer was on the aisle seat. Um, about two or three hours into the train ride, I heard a gunshot and breaking glass come from behind me. Uh, I didn't really know what to think because Europe's a gun-free continent, obviously. And uh, then I see a train employee running away from the noise at a full sprint. I look back, see he's running away from, and there's a shirtless man with an AK-47. And, you know, it, immediately I realized what was going on. I just, you know, couldn't believe that this is how I was going to die. And uh, I ducked behind the seat, uh, Spencer, uh, had noise canceling headphones on and was actually sleeping. He woke up from all the commotion and uh, saw what I was looking at, ducked down behind the seat next to me. I hit him on the shoulder and said, let's go. And I think, you know, I meant kind of let's go in a minute after he kills a few people and has to reload or maybe when he gets a little bit closer, but just hit him on the shoulder, said, let's go. He immediately took off after the guy. I didn't even realize he had gone at first uh, due to the adrenaline and tunnel vision and whatever i've got plenty of excuses but uh basically he finally gets to the guy tackles him i realize that he had gone i follow him uh he's choking the terrorist the ak-47's on the ground i pick up the ak-47 try to shoot the terrorist with it it's on safety before i can figure it out the terrorist pulls out a handgun and he's trying to line it up with spencer's head who's behind him choking him so i drop the ak-47 uh pry the handgun out of his hands hit him in the face a few times with it uh, then Spencer yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife, get him off me. And the terrorist had pulled out an extendable, breakable uh, six-inch box cutter and was slicing Spencer on the back of the neck. And so Spencer kicked the terrorist off of him. Anthony had joined us at that point, and all three of us were just trying to punch him, kick him, doing whatever we could do to not get stabbed or injured. Um, finally, Spencer and I get kind of control of him. We have him bent over this little table. I put the handgun to the back of his head and say, stop resisting, stop resisting. He doesn't listen, so I pull the trigger. Handgun doesn't go off. And what had actually happened was before we got involved, there was two passengers waiting to use the restroom. Uh, and when the terrorist came out of the bathroom after getting all of his weapons ready, um, he was confronted by these two passengers. Uh, they started fighting with him. Uh, finally, one passenger ended up getting the AK-47 from him. The terrorist pulled out the handgun, accidentally dropped the magazine, shot the one round in the chamber, hitting Mark, was his name, in the neck. Uh, and that was the gunshot and breaking glass that we initially heard. And then the train employee who actually broke them up thinking it was a regular fight running away from the noise. Um, so the handgun was empty. I throw it. Spencer's getting pretty frustrated. Uh, puts him in another chokehold. I pick the AK-47 back up, start hitting him in the head until he kind of stops fighting back. And um, then I watch him go unconscious from Spencer's chokehold. Uh, Spencer was pretty upset with the guy and was continuing to choke him uh, after he was unconscious. He wanted to kill him. And probably would have, but then I look up and I see Mark, who got shot in the neck, with blood squirting out of his neck across the aisle, trying to stand up. Wow. And so, once again, being the good friend that I am, I say, Spencer, go get that guy. <laughs> Spencer Spencer was an EMT in the Air Force, so he crawled over, put two fingers in Mark's neck wound, stopped the bleeding. I took the AK-47. Uh, I was infantry, so security is the first priority of work. Um, I went to load it, thinking it was unloaded, and a round ejected from the chamber, meaning that it was loaded. It landed on the seat next to me and I could tell that there was a dent in the back of the primer. Uh, and so he had actually tried to shoot either Spencer or Mark at some point and wow. the gun just didn't go off. We just had a misfire. So I made some remark about how lucky we got, checked the rest of the train for wounded passengers or terrorists. There were none, came back, unloaded. 
all the weapons helped uh, Spencer with Mark's medical care until we got to the train station uh, about 15 or 20 minutes later. And Mark made a full recovery, which is very dramatic considering uh, his blood loss. I honestly did not think he had a chance. I mean, it's just an incredible story. And you guys wrote a book about it. They made a movie. Here's what I want to know about the movie. How did you convince them to let you be in it? <laughs> you know, you would think usually when they make a story like a, you know, a biopic or something like that, they they get some, you know, actor to play you. Like, how, how did that all go down? Well, that's a hell of a story, too. So we actually, so Clint Eastwood directed the movie, for those that don't know, and we met him just by chance at like a party in a green room and uh, for like a, you know, an awards show. And we were talking to him and I just, you know, joked like, hey, we uh, we wrote this book. You should do the movie. And he said, send me a copy and never know. And I just blew it off as he was joking. But once again, Spencer, to his credit, followed up and sent him a copy of the book with a letter attached. And three days later, got a call from Clint Eastwood directly saying, hey, I read the book. Let's do it. And so um, that was a whole process, you know, negotiating the movie rights and writing the uh the script and everything telling our story over and over and over again and then 10 days before filming we get flown down to la to meet with clint eastwood and the producers again which had become kind of routine at that point and so we're talking to them and uh you know this is 10 days before the movie so i'm thinking they're flying us down to meet the actors that are playing us you know show them what happened kind of a thing and he's talking to us and he says you know hey how would you guys feel about doing it again and we're like oh yeah you know we'll reenact it and show the actors you know what happened he's like no no how would you feel about doing it yourselves and we're like what do you mean and he said do you want to play yourselves in the movie wow and obviously when Clint Eastwood asks you to do something you do it so we played ourselves in the movie I'm not sure if the producers or the studio necessarily agreed with the decision (laughs) and uh in hindsight being 2020 I'm not sure if the acting is that great in the movie but it's a very very accurate movie if nothing else I mean there was nothing that was you know, fake or added. For I mean, the, that just had to, that just had to have been surreal to, you know, go through that in real life and then, you know, recreate it essentially, you know, in, in a movie as yourself, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just gotta be wild. <laughs> it definitely, uh, it definitely was an authentic feeling. Yeah. And, you know, we're sitting in an identical train car to the one that actually it, it happened in, you know, and we look back and we see this, actor uh who's a really cool guy ray uh but dressed like the terrorist holding an ak-47 i mean it actually kind of gave you a little bit of an, an adrenaline rush to be back in the exact same circumstances with the exact same people because almost everybody in the train car that day actually played themselves in the movie not just us um so yeah it was a trip and obviously clint eastwood's the coolest guy ever getting to work with him for three months was a blast that's amazing that's amazing so you're running for congress oregon's fourth congressional district you're raising a lot of money, you know. I see your fundraising's really strong. Uh, I saw in Politico recently they'd upgraded your race as well. It seems like there's a lot of momentum. What are you hearing from folks on the ground? I mean, folks on the ground here are, I think, it's the same thing across the country, really. Inflation, gas prices, cost of living as a whole, uh, wages not keeping up. I mean, the only th- the things that really make this district unique is that we're the poorest congressional district in the state. We have abundant natural resources, which we could be using, you know, like the fishing industry on the coast. We have the most productive softwood forest, in, I think, the world, actually, in this district. Uh, and we're not using them. We have massive forest fires every year. Um, there's, I mean, this is Western Oregon, for, again, people that don't know. Um, and 
I think what's really happened in Oregon, this is kind of speaking to the greater uh, issues at hand, is Oregon has not been competitive for Republicans for a long, long time. I mean, we've been, this congressional district has been Democrat, I think, for 48 years. Uh, the state of Oregon, we haven't had a Republican governor in like 45 or so, or so years. Um, and I think what's happened is Republicans have not made an effort to run good candidates or help them raise money. And then all of a sudden, in a year like this, the Democrats got really aggressive, too aggressive with redistricting, and made multiple districts competitive for a Republican. They're all open this year on top of the governor's race. So I think Oregon has really slowly been kind of going more and more Republican over the years, but no one's really been able to tell because we've never ran good candidates that have really run close races. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, 2022 comes up. We've got Joe Biden as president, multiple open congressional districts, and we get good candidates that are all raising money. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, Oregon is actually competitive. And for people that live here, you know, outside of Portland, it is pretty conservative. We've got a couple college towns, but you know, I think, you know, it's just a lot more competitive than most people realized and people are realizing it pretty much overnight. And I think we have a very good chance of sweeping the three competitive congressional districts, as well as getting Christine Drazen, who you guys had on, I think a week or two ago, um, into the governor's mansion. So I'm very optimistic for our chances in Oregon. Yeah, you know, I mean, that governor's race is a perfect example of what you're talking about. I mean, nobody would think that, think that like, a Republican had a chance to win statewide in Oregon. And, you know, I mean, it's a very, very competitive race. I mean, I totally agree. W what I think is interesting about Oregon is you've got, um, you know, Portland and sort of this issue of law and order and crime um, that I think has has opened a lot of people's eyes. Do you do you see that? Do you hear that from voters on the ground? I don't see it quite as much in my district, uh, just because Portland is still pretty far away from us. We're kind of in the yeah. western, we're south of Portland quite a ways. I think crime is a great issue across the country, and I mean, it's gone up like eight hundred percent in Portland over the last two years. I mean, it's definitely an issue for the two congressional districts that are competitive that go into Portland, and of course, Christine Drazen. Um, but down here, it's pretty much the economy. The economy is king, and again, we're the poorest congressional district in the state. We can afford the inflation and the gas prices the least. The average price of gas in Oregon is like five fifty a gallon right now. I mean, it's just it's like a perfect storm economically for down here. And again, especially when we have all these opportunities for exploiting our natural resources and creating good jobs and bringing money into county government that's not happening. I mean, people really have seen the mismanagement over the last 40 years, and it's almost impossible for the Democrats to blame anyone else because they've had federal control for two years, control of state government for 40, and control of this congressional district for 48. I mean, you can't really pass the buck anymore. Uh, there's no Donald Trump's not president. They don't have this, you know, straw man that they can blame federally. Right. It's literally all Democrats from usually even local office all the way to the president in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Democrats, your opponent, uh, Van Hoyle, is that right? Val. Val. Val Hoyle. Val Hoyle. Um, tell me about her. Is she, I mean, um, is she, is she, is she have any answers on, on this inflation or is she just... You know, it seems like all the Democrats across the country just say we're doing the best we can. We pla we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, not her, but yeah. It's never even come up. I mean, she's avoiding the issue entirely. She's trying to keep everyone focused on abortion. Um, and that's 
pretty much it. She's just running on abortion and her track record of being a career politician, which frankly isn't that great because she's voted to raise taxes on people that make as little as $31,000. She's voted to raise taxes on nursing homes, which is our most vulnerable population. Uh, she took a lot of money from the pharmaceutical companies when she was the House Majority Leader uh, in the State House. Um, so, I mean, she has a pretty bad voting record of raising taxes, and especially, again, when you coincide that, that with where we're at, at in the country of, you know, people working one extra month out of the year just to pay for the added costs of inflation, you know, uh, again, this district poorest in the state, we can't afford all these things, and now she wants to raise taxes on us. I mean, it's insane, and I think a lot of Democrats in Oregon have thought they could get away with some of these extreme votes are now eating their words in this kind of a year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, politics uh, is obviously a lot different than than your background of, of military service. What you know, what was the biggest you know change for you? What was the the thing you really had to learn about politics and, and sort of coming into this arena versus your you know your background? Well, it was uh, a long time coming. I mean, very slow process. I met my state senator on a plane. He talked to me about politics. I kind of blew him off because I really didn't want to get involved like most people these days. And uh, honestly, just the more I learned, the angrier I got. Again, for me, it kind of started with the forestry issue. There's a lot of things with how our forests are not being managed that make zero sense, even on the Democrat side of the aisle. There's things that are good for the environment that should be happening that are not. Um, And so I just, I mean, I really just felt like this district has been ignored for a long, long time. Um, you know, everyone in Oregon focuses on Portland, like you mentioned. And again, that's where the Democrats usually have their voting base. And so the rural parts of Oregon as a whole have been ignored. And so that issue of, you know, forestry and lack of forest management really got me angry. We've had massive, massive forest fires over the years and Democrats just blame climate change and they don't tie it into how we're actually managing the forest, which is obviously the bigger issue. Um, so how, how does how does that, how does that work the forestry m- management issues? So you know I've I've heard this before, but but you know honestly I, I don't know that much about it really. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty big issue. I'm not sure if we have time to get into it completely, <laughs> but I would say that um, basically back in the early '90s, uh, the federal government really shut down the amount of trees that were allowed to be cut in the federal forest, and some of the federal forest lands specifically are set aside as working forest forests that are meant to be harvested on a regular basis and they even set a metric for how often they're supposed to be harvested um and then in the early 90s uh northwest forest plan democrats really threw that out the window uh really violating uh you know 70 80 years of precedent at that point and so they threw it out the window and it takes about 30 or 40 years for douglas fir to mature and here we are 30 or 40 years down the road from when they stopped harvesting and a lot of these trees that were planted with the intent of harvested are now full-grown trees growing this far apart. We have a very dense forest that's not being thinned, not being managed whatsoever. Um, and so you have this abundant fuel load in the forest. And you know, a 10,000 acre fire or larger used to be about a once a decade occurrence in Oregon. And now we're seeing 100,000 acre fires happen almost every year. I mean, it's to say that it's just the climate when the climate has changed this much uh, i mean it's obviously a much bigger issue than just the climate it's our lack of forest management it's our lack of thinning it's our lack of salvage logging which is a whole other and this is one of the things that really pisses me off after a forest burns the tree itself 
it, it still exists. The tree trunk does not burn just the limbs. So you can still cut down that tree as long as you do it within 18 months and get 90 to 95% of its actual value before insects get to it and it starts to rot. And then once you salvage that tree and cut it down, you have to plant three young trees in its place. So the forest comes back quicker. Not to mention there's more carbon put in the atmosphere by that for uh, that forest decaying after a forest fire then the forest fire itself actually puts it in the atmosphere so it sequesters carbon you plant young trees and the forest comes back 10 years quicker and has a significantly uh, less chance of reburning in the future it's something that should have been happening already even if i was a democrat i would vote for that but <laughs> and democrats this has been a problem for 30 years and they haven't done anything on the issue and it takes a republican to bring it up when it's frankly just good for the environment i don't understand yeah, it's incredible that they've had, you know, control for as long as they they've had it in in Oregon. Uh and you're the one who asked to <laughs> ask these questions, why we're not doing the simple things that everyone should agree on. It's incredible. It's depressing, I tell you what, you know, I mean that's why that's why I'm running for Congress. That's why a lot of other people have a chance of winning this year is because Democrats have even ignored the issues that they claim to care about. Yeah. Um well, we have three questions here on the Ruthless Variety program. We ask yes. all of our guests. These are important. As you know, you've listened to some episodes. Um, you know, a lot of people judge uh, the candidates based on these answers. So uh, question number one, if you could plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? I mean, this is a terrible answer, and I understand people are going to judge me for it, but uh, I would say pizza. Yeah. It's it's, t- it's my favorite food. I eat it probably three times a week. I don't think that's a terrible uh, answer. What, what what type of pizza do you like? Uh, it's got to be thin crust or at least uh, cooked pretty well done. Pepperoni mushroom or barbecue chicken. Wow. Barbecue yeah. chicken. Those, um, those are controversial pizza selections. Uh, you know, some, I mean, no, some no people. Pi- no pineapple. No pineapple. Okay, here we go. For, for the record. For the record. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there's those pizza traditionalists, you know, you can't you can't get too crazy with it or they complain. I'm sure we'll hear from them on on Twitter tomorrow. <laughs> okay, so second question here. Um if you weren't in politics and you you didn't have this this career of military service as well. Um you know, if you if you'd never helped take down a terrorist on a train to Paris. Um, blue sky what would you be doing with your life honestly i would still probably be a sniper in the national guard uh maybe even try to become a sniper in law enforcement i uh you know that was one of the things that i'm very fortunate for my age you know i just turned 30 i've done almost everything i've ever wanted to do um except for get elected to congress of course. <laughs> um, but you know being, being a sniper in the national guard was like what i'd always wanted to do since i was like 12 and getting to do that, I mean, it was a fun job, great people. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly, so I would love to, you know, still be doing that today. Um, but, you know, I feel like someone's got to do this job, unfortunately, and I think uh, uh, it's got to be me. Nice, nice. Well, so, I mean, you got to live your dream. That's nice, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I really checked a lot of boxes for someone my age. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I am very grateful for all the opportunities that I've had, um, but... Again, politics is kind of a calling, and it's unfortunate that we've been running to the ground as a state, and someone's got to do something about it, and I feel like I just had to step up. Awesome. Okay, so third and final question, and this is a big one. 
Um, what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Thrill of victory being an optimist who looks at the world, you know, glass half full, um, you know, loves winning. And ag- agony of defeat is, you know, any defeat you've had in your life, you wear on your back like a backpack. And what motivates you to succeed is, you know, that you'll never have that feeling of losing again. Thrill of victory or agony of defeat? I mean, who doesn't love winning? Uh, <laughs> but I would say probably agony of defeat. I just, you know, just for myself, you know, I actually ran for this district last cycle against the incumbent congressman who's now retiring. Uh, it's a big reason why we have an opening this year. Uh, so I would say probably agony of defeat. I mean, I just, I feel like the second time we've got to get it done. You know, we have the momentum. We've been beating the Democrat up by every metric if we can't get it done this year it's probably never going to happen for the republicans so we need all the help we can get and i think that even for the district itself you know we cannot afford another era another tenure of a democrat congresswoman um after you know 48 years it's not been good for the district like i said we're the poorest in the state we just i would feel terrible if we lose uh simply because i would know this district's going to be mismanaged for another 20 30 40 years yeah this is our chance this is it. We're building the red wave. Alec, if people want to help your campaign, where do they go? Well, we definitely need the help. Um, it's going to be a very close race, but I would say uh, Alec for Oregon.com, A-L-E-K-F-O-R Oregon.com. Uh, if you want to donate or volunteer, uh, shoot us an email. Um, we definitely need a lot of volunteers. We're knocking doors, making phone calls. Um, this is going to be one of the races that I think is kind of on the edge of what's winnable for Republicans this cycle. And if we can pull this off, I mean, like I said, if we get a Democrat incumbent in this seat, it's going to be very, very tough to beat them in a D plus four district as an incumbent. So we have to do it now. So I really do appreciate the help. And thanks for having me on. This is a good opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. You know, we've had we've had a lot of guests on this show, but it's rare to have a an actual hero. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean. The, the fact that he was able to act as himself in that in the movie, you know, about his story because of Clint Eastwood, just incredible stuff. I mean, I just uh, it's amazing to be in a situation where I remember that story. I mean, like, this is the most badass dude ever. Yeah. Right. And now we're in a situation to have him on the show. It's incredible. It's mind blowing. Absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. Thank you so much to all our minions, and we will see you on Thursday. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the lives. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.